0: You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by FitStairs, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings.
1: Hello and welcome to Nick Luck Daily, the show that brings you the latest news and the sharpest insight from around the world of horse racing. It is Tuesday, the 16th of November. Tom Stanley in for Nick, and plenty to discuss today with senior writer at the Racing Post, Lee Mottishead. We'll be turning our attention to Ireland with the ongoing news of the John Warwick raid. Also, some news on Stephen Maher, next trainer over there. Turning your attention to the UAE as well. We'll be speaking to british trainer kim bailey about his weekend runners but first of all lee motter said you have uh, returned from the premiere of detori the new film about frankie detori that was last night at the
2: curzon mayfair lee did detori deliver yeah i think it it really did now i should preface this tom by saying that um i'm certainly no barry norman of old i'm not a i'm not a trained film critic i know what i like and i know what i don't like um, and I did like this very much indeed. This was actually the third time I'd seen the film um, last night. That's because I I'd had two prior screenings, two viewings, if you like, at home, so that I could interview Frankie DeTore for a Racing Post big interview on Sunday linked to the film. So this was the third time I'd seen it, and I actually still really enjoyed it. There were still little bits in there, little nuances uh, that I hadn't really picked up on before. I think the team that have produced um, the, the film Trombone Productions, who are, who are linked to many great films, including one about uh, A.P. McCoy, I think they've been very clever because obviously most people know of Frankie de Tory, but most people aren't huge horse racing fans. So what they've done is they have built the film really around the theme of his very difficult relationship with his father Gianfranco Torre, who himself was a hugely successful uh, jockey in Italy and elsewhere. And by framing the film around that relationship um, through the the, the major stopping points of of Frankie's life, such as when he was sent to England at the age of 14, uh, The Magnificent Seven, the plane crash and his revival with John Gosden, things like that, they've actually found one thing to go the whole way through it. And I think that is very clever. And I don't know last night I was sat one row in front of John Gosden, who, of course, knows Frankie Torre far better than I know Frankie Torre. And even he said that after watching the film, there were things in there that he hadn't realised, things about the relationship with Gianfranco, which anyone who watches the film will see has been very difficult indeed over the years Um, it's done very clever there's an awful lot of emotion in there particularly when Frankie talks about a conversation with his wife Catherine that took place after he came back from the drugs ban and was finding it very hard to to get rides show me how good you are um, is a key line in the film Uh, it was said from Catherine by Catherine to Frankie and you, you quickly see once that's referenced how much that, that sentence meant to Frankie. So very deep, very clever, very beautiful, gorgeous soundtrack, and also bits of humour in there as well. I think you'll see that, that Frankie's manager, Pete Burrell, does something of a comic turn um, through the whole near two-hour journey, um, and he provides some of the, the, the funniest lines. But it's yeah, it, it's very good indeed. It was available to, to buy uh and to download from yesterday it's in certain cinemas i sound like i you know an advert for the the film tom uh, but i genuinely did enjoy it very much indeed
1: yes you should point out that there is no executive executive producer lee mott said on the film. No, <laughs> no 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 I, I, you're I, saying this yeah, as a fan we're absolutely. constantly looking looking for things that, that that transcend the sport um yeah be it, be it uh, stories or, or media or, or whatever it is does does this feel like a horse racing film or does it does it does it, does it feel like a human film
2: uh I think it feels more like a human film than a horse racing film. It's the story of a man whose whose life is rooted in horse racing. But I think it tries to talk about um, human emotions. Um, And I think Frankie was saying last night when he was interviewed by Nick Luck um, that what what he was hoping was that people would be able to watch the film and recognise things that he went through in their own lives in the sense that we all have relationships with our parents. Some are good relationships, some are more difficult relationships. So I think, I think it is more than a a horse racing. film. one example of that, Tom, is that the opening scenes uh, look at Enable's first arc defeat that year when she was caught on the line by, by Waldgeist. Um, There's no reference to Enable's second arc defeat because that particular uh, aspect of the story doesn't really help tell the wider story of frankie the person so they have actually been very selective if you're looking to go to the film to get a two-hour uh, detailed journey through frankie's career as a jockey this isn't that film yes those big racing moments are in there but it's as much about frankie de Tory the person and indeed those people around him um, as it is a, a story of frankie de Tory the jockey and he's bigger than a jockey anyway
1: you did the big read on uh, Sunday for Frankie de Torre. Yesterday, your uh, column was entitled The Uncomfortable Aspect of Being at Cheltenham that You Didn't See on ITV. For anyone that hasn't read the column, Lee, what was that uncomfortable aspect?
2: Well, uh, Friday, Tom, was was Cheltenham's countryside race day, has been for an awfully long time. Um, it's a day when uh, a lot of the, the country sports. Uh, supporting community, um, go there, and um, they have events staged around the racing. Um, I was in the in the paddock before the third race, the the now infamous two runner match between Drogo and Gin on Lime, and and before the race, the big screen, that big screen, at the, the back end of the of the paddock um, was showing pictures of uh, the hunt parade that takes place on the track itself, from the final fence down towards. winning posts. Loads of hounds, loads of horses, loads of hunt supporters, loads of hunt riders, many of whom, as I noted in the the column, uh, weren't wearing uh, chin straps, which is is regrettable in itself. But in a a wider sense, I watched those pictures, Tom, and I felt slightly uneasy. You know, cards on the table. I'm someone who has never been a a supporter of of hunting, so not fox hunting um, in the past when the Labour government uh, Tony Blair's government passed uh, a ban on fox. So i think that was something that I, I certainly would have would have supported, but I'm not. I'm not one of these sort of uh, frenzied anti-hunting ha- hunting people, um, and I'm certainly not anti people who hunt. I just disagree with it as as a as a as a pastime, if you like. And I felt uneasy partly because we've had all these stories in in recent months of uh, claims and um, allegations that fox hunting is still taking place and that trail hunting is a smokescreen for fox hunting. That's why the National Trust has banned uh, uh, the use of its land for trail hunting. So I felt uneasy watching that. And because I believe that there are dangers of horse racing, a sport that some people jump racing, a sport that some people feel might be under threat in the future so closely aligning itself with an activity that the majority of people, fox hunting as I say, that, that activity the majority of people would would disagree with and that danger: that if people think that hunting fox hunting still is going on in the name of trail hunting that racing's relationship with that set might not come, come across that well. So I, I felt uneasy but that in itself isn't enough for a column because I felt uneasy about that relationship for a long time. But I I discovered during the day um, and over the following day that on Friday morning um, a representative of, of Cheltenham and the jockey club had spoken to the ITV racing team and asked them specifically not to show pictures of that hump parade in the coverage. I'd watched the coverage back on Saturday morning, seen no evidence of those pictures. And I just thought that was a bit odd because visually It was a very strong image on the day. That whole stretch of ground was pretty much taken up, as I say, from the final fence to the winning post. And I just thought the fact that Cheltenham had actually asked ITV not to show those pictures tallied with the announcement that was made earlier in the year that the the name of the Fox Hunters, that famous race that is staged nowadays, one race after the Cheltenham Gold Cup on the Friday of the festival, its name was changed, so the word Fox was dropped out of the title, now some thought that was just being a bit, a bit silly, really, a bit, a bit of a uh, a woke. That's that word they do, isn't it? A woke maneuver uh, by Cheltenham. I actually think it was a very good idea. But like those two things together for me signal that even Cheltenham, the home of jump racing, a track that stages a Hunter Chase card at the at the end of uh, their season, even they are starting to feel slightly uneasy with the relationship um, with. The, the country sports uh, the, the community and the, and the countryside lines. Now, against that, it's still the case that, that I'd also discovered that Cheltenham actually make a donation to the countryside lines from gate receipts on the day. Now, I think some people who go racing who certainly wouldn't support the countryside lines might find that, that questionable. Um, so I, I just thought it was an interesting development in that relationship, Tom. We all know how closely rooted jump racing in particular is with with hunting, we know the race through through hunter chases, heck, through point-to-pointing as well. I, I don't think there's any reason why why jump racing couldn't survive if, if hunting didn't exist. Um, it, it, you, things just develop and they change. And I certainly think that what happened at Cheltenham on Friday, for me, is an indication that even people within the sport who have this deep-rooted relationship with that country sports community are just starting to feel a little bit uneasy about it and questioning how that relationship should be painted in the future. I would just say as well, it's, it's a very difficult issue for some people to, to accept. And I know that people who are big supporters of hunting and country sports, and I've seen this on Twitter from when, when the article was posted, they, they get very angry about suggestions um, that what they do is wrong or that, or, or that, Anyone in jump racing um, shouldn't also be a supporter of, of what they do or acknowledge that what they do is important to horse racing. So I think it's a very emotional issue to say I thought what happened on Friday was an interesting newsy development in that relationship.
1: We will uh, break up uh, Leah and I's chat I I assure you we'll be hearing from uh, Kim Bailey a little bit later on and um, also we'll have our regular Weatherby's Bloodstock segment but there's still more news to digest a couple of bits from Ireland now one old one new we'll start with the old uh, Lee and Mm. um, uh, obviously Lydia and Nick if you haven't listened to to yesterday's podcast regarding the John Warwick the therapist at the the centre of the Uh, Daff and Raid at Kelty Kildare if you haven't listened to yesterday's podcast please do because it picks it apart brilliantly I think there's essentially nothing else um, that's come out certainly no more facts in the last 24 hours but I'd I'd like to sort of hear your overall opinion as to where we are currently.
2: Well um, Tom you, you make that point that no more facts have come out in the last 24 hours we haven't actually had a lot of facts full stop I thought that Lydia's uh, forensic dissection of what we know so far on Monday was, was typically uh, impressive and thorough. And she made that point that there are dangers at the moment of making too much in the way of, of commentary and analysis of things that we don't actually know to be true. Um, there are a lot of, we have a, a lot of rumour and insinuation at the moment. We have a lot of uh, unproven facts, and I think we also inevitably have a lot of lies that are, be, that are being told. You know, for example, if you look at the this situation of the relationship between John Warwick and Coolmore, John Warwick says he's been in and out of Coolmore all the time. Coolmore say he hasn't. Well, both those statements can't be true. So I think at some point we need to work out what actually is true, what actually isn't true. I think the whole thing, however, clearly paints an exceptionally worrying uh, picture for the sport in Ireland, but also I think in in britain um i think some elements of the story as have been picked up elsewhere are um astonishingly intriguing i mean the the idea if it was true of british trainers combining to hire a private investigator to to assess the property on which john uh, john warwick was acting um is is incredible really i mean dick francis-esque yeah it is dick francis-esque but of course we don't know it's true tom it's been reported and it's Indeed. been suggested, but we don't know it's true. If it was true, then wow, it's it really does. Ind- it would indicate that British trainers uh, collectively have huge suspicions about what's happening in Ireland. But as I say, we don't know it's it's the case. Um, we we don't know quite. We don't know who was in all these unbranded horse boxes going in and out of that property. Um, I think others have said it, it's unusual to see so many unbranded horse boxes going onto a. Uh, a thoroughbred property if you like because that's not what you tend to see most horse boxes tend to be branded so one wonders why they were unbranded Um, and I think as well just I I just made the point I think that Lydia referred to as well yesterday in terms of the practice that John Warwick um, reports himself to have been been doing with horses in relation to, to, to leg injuries um, and the neuroblast and etc it, it again i'm not a vet but it, it sounds quite like sort of desensitizing horses to um to to injuries and and to pain and, and and if that was the case and so i'm not a vet so i don't know but if that, if that was the case um i think there would be major question marks over that and of anyone who who was uh, allowing that to happen to their horses so it's it's a It's a huge story, Tom, but I say I think until we know more in the way of facts and hard evidence, and that could take a while, I think it's difficult to provide too much in the way of detailed uh, analysis and views on what's right and what's wrong.
1: And also, news uh, breaking yesterday from Richie Forrestal regarding the former trainer Stephen Mann. Um Stephen, who was banned for four years over neglect related issues, that ban was subsequently reduced by six months, not his first offence. He has now been found guilty and fined 500 euros in order to pay 250 euros towards the IHRB costs after being found guilty of um, intimidating. Uh, the IHRB veterinary team during a sampling procedure at Tipperary in July. Given this individual's history and now this offence as well, well, in fact, Lee, to be honest, before this offence, that relating to his um, initial four-year ban, I, I honestly have no idea why this individual is allowed to set foot in any racing premises or near any horse whatsoever.
2: Here, hear. I mean, I think it is utterly incredulous Um, And incredible that um, Irish horse racing and the Irish horse racing regulatory board um, has got to a position where a man who has committed such appalling um, horse welfare crimes is allowed to continue to work in the sport. This actual uh, incident that that has been reported yesterday is, is a relatively minor breach. It's 250 euro fine. And the the the, the, the people here in the crime made that point, but the fact that Mann is allowed to work in in Irish horse racing, I think, is an absolute disgrace. Um, And this just highlights that again. And it's 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 bad it's bad public it's needless bad publicity for Irish horse racing because the vast majority of people who work in Irish horse racing, as in British horse racing adore horses, love horses and will act responsibly. Um, and for this guy to be painted as someone representing Irish horse racing because he works in the sport, um, I think is is extremely disappointing.
1: And finally, it feels like this is a nine o'clock news or something, but um, the, the final piece of news we're going to discuss comes from the UAE and that is that trainer Satish Simar's licence has been suspended over his links to the Chechen leader, Ramzan Kadirov. Satish Simar trained a a, a notable horse of his in the form of North America, ran a couple of times in the Dubai World Cup. His licence has been suspended. His assistant, Bupat Simar, will take over the licence for now and Saddle Runners on Thursday.
2: Lee, what do you make of this decision? Yet another... um... Incredible story, really. I mean, a, a, lot, a lot of the stories that we're talking about in, in the pod at the moment, you almost think that they're strange. They're, they're stranger than fiction. So, in this instance, um, the United States Office of Foreign Assets Control, as you say, Tom, has um, uh, in effect, I suppose, made an accusation against um, Satish Seema in relation to to, to Ramzan Kadarov, who I think anyone who Knows anything about the uh, the world politics world 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 affairs will know is um, is accused of some of the most heinous acts imaginable. He actually owned, had race horses in Britain for quite a while. I think since 2014 that in effect he was taken off the um, the permitted owners list, um, but he still much more recently had horses racing. In the UAE, um, this uh, U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control List, in relation to Satish Seema, described him as a horse trainer for Kadarov, and they say, "...has materially assisted, sponsored, or provided financial material or technological support for, or goods and services to, or in support of, Kadarov." now, Satish Seymour spoke to uh, the Racing Post. He confirmed that suspension. He said, the horse in question is no longer in training at Zabiel Racing Stables. My case has been submitted to lawyers in Washington, D.C., and I'm confident my name will be removed from the list in the near future. As you say, Tom, his nephew has taken on um, the, the stable. Um, but, you know, we talked about some negative headlines for Irish racing, at the moment, that has been the case as well um, with racing in Dubai. It's not just Ireland. You, if you look at stories, do a quick bit of Googling in relation to Ali Al-Rahi, um, who was, was banned for a year, and Salam uh, bin Gadia, um, who was also, well, he had his wrist slapped over, over um, sanctions, but there have been stories of drugs breaches. Um, so within that racing community as well, um, quite a few negative stories recently
1: right turning our attention to matters closer to home now uh, Kim Bailey has some notable runners this weekend or intended runners certainly um, I spoke to him a little bit earlier on starting with Imperial Aura's participation in the Betfair chase
3: it was always gonna be the first protocol because he had a wind operation during the summer uh, or rather, when he came back in, um, and time-wise, we weren't going to be able to do anything else bar go for this race. So we 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 made that our target. Um, and uh, Ian Robinson, who runs the partnership owns it, was very keen to have a go at it. So you know, we second his opinion.
1: So let's go. Is this the start of him being campaigned differently this year, i.e., over three miles, or do you see what happens on Saturday?
3: Well, I think, I, I've always said I felt that he was a three-miler in waiting, um, and I think now we've got the situation where we probably need to find out whether he is. You know, we ran in once over three miles as an novice uh, at Cheltenham, um, and, uh, you know, he got beat that particular day, but I'm not particularly worried. That's was, too, you know, 80 months ago, so he's a much bigger and stronger horse now, and uh, he's ready to go and be campaign three miles.
1: For anyone looking back at the, um, the run at the festival last year, the main reason for the disappointment was...?
3: Well, he broke a blood vessel, um, and also they went unbelievably quick in that race, and he's a horse that wanted to be handy. They were completely run off their feet. Half the field pulled up. Um, it was a staggering performance. I don't think I've seen horses go as fast as that, but um, anyway, that was last year. Uh, as I say, he came out with a broken blood vessel, um, and uh, it was it was not a major bleed. It was, it was there. It was enough to say, you know, enough's enough so we start with him give him a good
1: summer out and he's come back in there i think a much stronger and better horse for it are you hoping for decent ground at haydock would that be ideal for him
3: well I, I, I you know he's he's run well on soft ground and he you know he broke the track record as a novice car, uh, car i on good to fam um but having said that it's not necessarily what i'm looking for good ground is you know probably good jumping ground would be great mm. um I, I am concerned that the fact that we haven't had any rain anywhere and that the word good seems to
4: classify lots of different meanings nowadays, so it'll be quite interesting to see what it's like.
1: Is that a worry for, for Espoir de Rome He's got a couple of possibilities between Ascot and Haydock.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say quite probably it is a worry for him because at the end of it, he's he's a very different type of horse. Um you know, I think the ground is borderline for them, really. Um, and uh, so we shall have to see. He works on Wednesday, and we'll have more idea after that. And we'll have more idea what's happening as far as the weekend's concerned as well. It's got the two entries, um and we'll see which race cuts up really, and probably which race which race has the better ground.
1: So it won't be sort of uh, the, the the class angle, if you like. You wouldn't be worried about about flinging him into Ascot if if that looked the better race for him.
3: No, I think we've got a. You know, at the end of it, we have a, we have an entry for the King George. I have to say, it's a pretty sensitive entry. Um, there's no point um, mucking around and saying, well, you know, um, if the race is suitable for Alaska, the ground is suitable. That's probably where he ought to go if he's going to step up in grade afterwards. If he's not good enough for that, then probably the, the King George is as you know, a step too far.
1: Were you happy with the the Carlari appearance?
3: Well, and the interesting thing was that I mean, we knew we were not 100% cherry ripe. You know, we were also getting into a season which was um, important that he, he had longevity in it and therefore having him tailor-made for day one was probably not what we wanted be game to do. Um, but they went, you know, what I find quite staggering is they broke the track record. So, mm. you know, you begin to wonder how, why, on soft ground or good soft ground, how they can break a track record. But if the timing is correct and everybody it is, it was a staggeringly fast run. Um, I think it was 28 seconds faster than what Imperial did. Um, the same, you know, the same race the year before. I know it was heavier ground, but even so, you know, to run to to break a track record on good soft ground tells you an awful lot about the speed of the race was run at. Um, and he didn't get an opportunity to get his second win as a result of it. So, um, I, I, yes, I'm disappointed he got beat. Disappointed he didn't finish closer. But I think looking back in hindsight, there was every reason why he did what he did. And he jumped the second last upsides in front, and they were going a fair old lick. Um, and uh, you know horses that's had a bit of a break they need a, a, a bit of time in a race to be able to get their second win but he didn't have that so um, yeah, I think he's run a very good race
1: um, he obviously was a, a very good novice last year he ran in his um, intermediate chase got the option of the graduation chase or or, or a grade 2 as, as you point out at Ascot are there, are there enough races for horses like him or are there too many?
3: Um, but certainly not not enough, and certainly not too many. <laughs> it's very difficult for all these horses. And the problem we have is the fact that you know you have a you have a race at Sandown the other day with two runners, and that's not what people want to go and see. Uh, but it's very hard for uh, horses that are rated in the one sixties to work out where you go because at the end of it, handicaps become very difficult. I'm not, I'm not averse to running with a handicap because I think good horses should be able to carry weight in handicaps. But he is so a baby; he's still a young horse. He has very little experience. Um, and you're trying to build up experience on a horse before he's, uh, you know, you want them to walk before they run, really. And uh, um, his campaign last year was a was a quiet campaign. Um, and when we stepped him up in in trip and in quantity and quality, rather, he you know he he paid the ultimate price for falling at Ainshy when perhaps he was unlucky not to you know to get round, but uh, he didn't complete, and that's a, a major worry to me because at the end of it, the good jumper he might be, but. You know, that was a pressurised day and uh, we need to get uh, all these pressure points working in the right direction
1: and um, all things being well do you do you see him as a, a, a top level staying chaser come the end of the year
3: I think he's going to be a horse that will be better over three miles um, you know he's a big gangly horse he's you 17.2 know, he's, um, he's very light framed um, he's um, um, as a horse that will I hope will get better as he gets older you know, he's had very little racing and uh, um he's a very talented individual now we just need to make sure it all goes the right way
1: for him mm. now uh, finally i wondered if we'd see first flow this weekend well that that seems pretty obvious given where we started this call and talks of good ground he's he's ready to go though is he when he gets his rack his ground
3: He's ready to go. And, I mean, it, one wonders where we are at the moment. I mean, call it global warning, call it what you like. But, I mean, there, there is no soft ground in the country. where Bar Fosslass and Dieril Fosslass haven't produced a, a, a champion two-mile chase race yet. So perhaps the month or something I need to think on in that respect. But, anyway, forgetting all that, he is a horse that pre- prefers soft ground. You know, I don't mind going on winter good to soft, soft ground, but not on what we're having at the moment. So, you know, Aspen are mm. very good at their job, but having said that, They've had little rain, um, and uh, we raced there uh, two, three weeks ago, and it was it was only good ground. Then we've had we've had rain since then, but we've also had a very long dry period, so it's not ideal for him. And to go and carry top weight in a handicap chase is not ideal. But the alternatives aren't great either, because you know we've got the <coughs> the race at Sandown, uh, the Chingle Creek, um, and that's going to be um, obviously a vastly competitive race, and uh, and, and we want very soft ground for that to be in, in, in his criteria, so it's a difficult one at the moment for him.
0: Well, it is Tuesday, and that means it's time again for the Weatherby's Bloodstock segment, and it's to Italy we go this week. Weatherby's research more catalogue pedigree than anyone else in the world, and among their clients is Italy's foremost sales company, Societa Gestione Aste, uh, Italy is a country that has been a leading player on the world stage of thoroughbred racing and breeding. But it's fair to say it's experienced somewhat tougher times of late. Uh, Dr. Franco Castelfranchi is one of the best known names in the Italian industry. And it's my pleasure to speak to him today and find out firsthand just how Italian racing and breeding is faring. Uh, Franco, so much for, for talking to me today. And Italian racing and yeah. breeding needs uh People like you, so give me a give me an update on on how the industry is doing now.
4: There are, uh, I would say, two, may, two major problems. Uh, one problem is that uh, uh, we hoped that by going under the direct control of the Ministry of, Agricol- uh, of Agriculture uh, would have uh, quickened all the pro- all the decision pro- process. Uh, in fact, uh, the experience has been appalling. Taking decisions uh, has become longer and frustrating than what it was uh, before. Uh, they take very, very long time uh, for, uh, to process the payments. We are uh, getting now June and July money, which is by far too long. Uh, for uh, for a modern industry, and uh, this makes everything uh, get slower lower and slower. and and that is uh, uh, the major concern.
0: Franco, I know. Also, you're concerned about the the sort of average age of ownership in Italy, which is a is a problem around around the world, really. But specifically with you, why do why do you think that is?
4: Why for instance in France, uh, you see. Uh, that uh, syndicates uh, go from strength to strength. In Italy, uh, for the bureaucracy I was speaking before, this is really uh, difficult. So, and really not uh, exactly in the spirit of Italian people. So, uh, no, economics are uh, changing, changing. less and less money in the middle class
0: uh, in the upper class there's not a real interest for racing. Uh, you know and given given Italy was such a, an international powerhouse you know th- there's hardly a conversation about thoroughbred breeding that takes place with without invoking Tessio and much more since then is it surprising that there isn't more or hasn't been more foreign, more Middle Eastern investment in the country?
4: Well, at first you have to say that uh, uh, you can uh, distinguish two era in the sort of, sort of uh, the world. Before or after uh, the, the Maktoum family. That is uh, the changing period, you know? Now, in Italy, except a very, very small exception, we had no influence at all from neither the Mahtoom family or any other Arab uh, player. Uh, So that is a limit, despite Italy uh, fascinates a lot all the Arab world. They come here for shopping, they buy, industry by uh, in, in the flats or uh, business area and so a lot of arab influence, but uh, not, uh, not in the racing world first point the second point is that uh, how racing works in italy nowadays racing is totally uh, based and confident only on the public money. Uh, raising itself has no direct way to uh, create new type of entities, new financing and so on.
0: And Frank, how does that manifest itself in the horse population? I mean, what does what does the scene look like in Italy now?
4: Number of horses of horse has dramatically decreased, uh, not only for uh, uh, the general crisis and so on, but uh, because of uh, uh, all, uh, all the costs and so on. Before, uh, we were sending even 600 mares uh, to foreign studios uh, and uh, I think uh, we have been instrumental in the development uh, of Irish uh, stallion market now I think there will be I would say less than 100 something like that not to speak with the difficulties uh, connected uh, with the Brexit which is a shame just to be polite.
0: Well, yes, it is a shame just to be polite. Well, we won't. We won't perhaps go into the Brexit issues now. I do, What I do want to do is to. Sort of try and look forward and try and see what you are going to do to make the best of what what remains in Italy, and particularly with a view to to the breeding industry and and the stallions that you're standing that you believe could start to to put your horses back where you want them. What have you got now that that we can look forward to?
4: It basically level of passion which is still there. I evaluate it in around. 6 to 800 mares. In the past years, there has been, been I would say, quite a decent uh, influx of new stallions. Um, We had, for uh, instance, just to make uh, uh, to to tell you some name, we have at the best data. uh, they had a very strong connection uh, with the Shadwell, And uh, we had in the past Mujahid, who, who was fantastic here in Italy. Uh, they, they got Mutaram uh, Muta last year. They have Arcano, who is, do, who is doing absolutely well. Um, they ported a few years before PAUST, which was a Breeders' Cup... Uh, know with the tory app uh, and uh, that's what then for instance uh, they came um, last year Lethal little and helmet helmet is doing particularly well here in Italy the other point is uh, uh, getting more mass and uh, this is a real problem for instance nowadays there is no more uh, a mixed sale in Italy, and uh, this is a pity, because uh, w- without a market, uh, you, you don't have a, uh, you don't have a, an industry. You know, uh, you speak of flowers, there is a market. You speak of everything, there is an exhibition, a trade fair, and the market. And this is what we are missing now so uh, this should be recreated well
0: I you've got uh, your work cut out and I know it's a, a big challenge but Italy, Italian Racing is very fortunate to have you uh, Franco thank you so much for talking to me this morning it's a pleasure Lee you
2: can send us home with a winner if you may well I should certainly try Tom um, and I'm going to go to Fakenham um, and it's a shame that more horses aren't going to Fakenham today um, tremendous prize money has been put up by that independent race course, as is often the case, but they have um, a lamentably small number of runners for a £70,000 race card. Thankfully, the meeting is being being supported um, by a number of uh, Fakenham's more faithful um, backers, one of those of whom is very much uh, Lucy Wadham, has a tremendous record at one of her local tracks. Briny Frost, when riding for Lucy Wadham, at fakenham has a very good record as well and i'm hoping and believing that they can combine to win the 150 at fakenham the weatherby's national hunt stallions.co.uk handicap chase it's a fakenham double up bonus race as well to me we see more good that fakenham are doing there i think little light the top weight carries 12 stone one i think little light can win that 150 at fakenham I say well done again to fakenham for putting up so much money real shame that probably because of ground conditions out at the minute. Um, there aren't more runners, uh, maybe that's the reason why, but Fakenham deserve more support. Uh, and I don't think me tipping a horse in the 150 at Fakenham necessarily provides much support, but there you go. Little light in the 150 at Fakenham.
1: I'm sure plenty more will watch it because of that, Lee. Um, <laughs> good stuff. Uh, my final question to you is, are, are there any films you've watched more than the Tory film? More than three times? There must be don't a few. I think
2: I've ever watched a film three times in such close succession. <laughs> I have to say, I I, I do feel I, I know Frankie Torre now far better than some of my best friends, having, having watched that three times in succession. But I say it is very good. I'm not a film critic. But I know what I like. I know what I don't like. And I like this. And I'm sure pod listeners will like it too. Frankie, if you're listening, you know my address.
1: <laughs> Lee, thank you very much indeed. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. Nick, we'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye.